Well, uh, this uh, VBS has been radically different. Obviously, if you participated in that, you know that. The online version, the videos that recorded, uh, AIM spending, I don't know, 3,000 hours editing those videos, however long it took him, it was definitely a different experience this year. Hopefully one, as Jen had shared towards the end, uh, that we never have to repeat again. Hopefully next year we'll be back in person, and, and we'll see what the Lord does with that. But really grateful for all the efforts. It was just kind of a strange strange time, and I know that the completion of it on Friday was really a, a big high five and a big victory uh, for everyone who was involved. School also, very strange this last quarter. Uh, our family absolutely celebrated when that last day came and it was done. I think Ethan got his last assignment turned in about 15 till 10 the night that it was due at midnight, and so when that day came for all three of the kids, we were like, yes, victory. Uh, one of the things he had to work on during that time was a Rube Goldberg machine. Uh, some of you are familiar with that. He's in a pre-engineering class. And so normally, it would have taken about a month. He would have had a group of people he would have worked with. But on this one, it was just, just Ethan. And he had about a week to complete it. And so, of course, when he needed help, he came to Tiffany. <laughs> Not to me. Uh, we've talked about this before. I am not the mechanical genius that you may think uh, that I am. I'm actually terrible when it comes to mechanical things. And Tiffany has a brain that's wired in that direction. And so she and Ethan put together this strings and pulleys, opening a door, doing all the different things. It was really uh, quite impressive to watch that thing come down, and it was super fun. It was very complex for me. Ethan, even mentioning Rube Goldberg, I had no idea what that was, and so he explained that to me. I said, yeah, you're definitely going to need your mom on that deal. So uh, complex, uh, simple. In the year 2000, Tiff and I moved uh, to Phoenix, Arizona. I was a student pastor there, and the house that we purchased didn't have a garage door opener. And so looking at that, wondering, well, how can we save a little bit? Maybe, maybe I could work on that. <laughs> and so started talking to some friends at church, and, and uh, there was a guy who had done that before. His name was John DeCatch. Actually, he's been a really good friend now for 20 years. He said, hey, listen, I've done that. Why don't I come and help you out uh, doing that? I said, that'd be great. So he came over. Uh, it was like 8 or 8.30 in the morning, literally already about 105 degrees. We're in the garage, no wind, no air blowing in the, the room, hot, sweaty. He knew what he was doing. So we got the box, took everything out set things in place, set them in line, and then he began to, quote-unquote, help me. <laughs> uh, it was the opposite. I actually uh, was his assistant, and we got the planks on the ceiling and started putting things together. It, it, was, it was really a phenomenal process, really, to watch John do almost all of it. Um, he knew exactly what he was doing. For me, if I look at a slate of instructions like that, uh, very challenging. My mind go somewhere else, and I, I just kind of get lost in the process of it. John knew exactly what to do, and that garage door opener worked every day following and was grateful for his investment and taking time on this new guy. He was a student ministry dad. Uh, complex, simple. For John, he could walk through the process, be able to identify what he needed to do, what we needed to do, and, and accomplish the task. For me, uh, very complex. Nothing about it was simple. Challenging. In the church over the last several centuries, there are some face, some 
individuals, writers, who have made not only the church a complex system that it seems it's difficult at points to interact with, but have also made the gospel very complex. One of the ways that that's taken place is saying it's the gospel plus works or the gospel plus fill in the blank. And as a result, when we've engaged those who are lost, if we adopt that complex system of what is said to be the gospel with someone else, it's very challenging for them to understand or to get what we're trying to communicate. The gospel actually is very simple. Eight words, really. God is love. We are sinners. Jesus saves. The simplicity of the gospel. And so as we go throughout life and we share the story of how Jesus radically changed our lives and what he can offer others, the gospel should really be fairly simple for us to communicate. Anyone who tries to make it more complex than that muddies the waters, as it were, and then it becomes confusing. We should be able to communicate simply our story in the gospel with people. There's a group of friends that I have uh, that one of their mottos is, we live to make Jesus make sense. Let me say it again. We live to make Jesus make sense, not only to believers, but to the lost alike. And so as John walks through this section today, we're going to highlight the fact that that is also our call that we are to live, to make Jesus make sense, especially to a lost and dying world. Before we really get into the passage, I want to reread what we studied last week because this passage flows together. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you remember the battle of what these false prophets were bringing into the church, which this false gospel that Jesus was not fully God and that he was not fully man, to the extent of saying the virgin birth never took place, that the Holy Spirit never was a part of the process, that Jesus was just born as a regular man. and At some point in the process, he became divine. But before he went to the cross, that divinity passed, and he was just a natural man dying on the cross. So they were trying to, these false prophets and teachers, infiltrate the church with these lies. John was combating that, if you recall our discussion last week. So not only Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, but this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. And so John, combating this false teaching, continues today. And we're going to see, as we're called to believe, uh, it's not only by grace that we believe, it's also by nature. Uh, There are two pieces that will be highlighted in our time together today. Uh, But before we start reading verses 4 through 6, and then dive in, let's pray together. Father, we say thank you for this morning and for your word. We pray that you would be with us, that you would illuminate, that you would lighten our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your word, and that you would continue to transform us into the people whom you've called us to be. 
pray there are a couple of encouragements that would come out and would resonate in our hearts today as we speak to your truth that you're communicating with us. God, we're, just, we're praying that you speak in these moments. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, uh, let's read four through six, and then we'll go through phrase by phrase what we need to look at. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So in the beginning of this, we consider, as he begins writing verse 4, that we believe by grace. Before we can actually dive in to verse 4, we need to consider the term grace. What is grace? Well, it's unmerited favor. It's another way to phrase that. In spite of our sin, in spite of the ugliness of our lives, God loves us. And he sent a solution for us, Jesus, to live and to die and to rise again on the cross, to give us the opportunity to find life in him. He loves us in spite of this amazing grace that he's poured out in us, that he's poured out over us, giving us the opportunity to actually know him. When we know those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, really what we deserve is separation from God and what the Bible describes as hell. We know that the opposite of what we deserve, God has graciously gifted to us, giving us relationship, opportunity with himself, in that showing us grace. And then as a result, we in turn as followers of Jesus are to extend grace to others. You've probably heard the phrase, those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Same is true of grace. Those who have understood what grace is, who have received much grace, are in turn gracious to those with whom they come into contact with. One produces the other, or at least it should. There should be this consistent tone of gratitude. And then we have to remember as well, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, if we're considering grace and we're looking at this, Paul's writing, he said, for it is by grace, again, looking at the concept of, of how we believe, why we believe, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's not by works so that no one can boast. And then he continues, and oftentimes we just focus on 8 and 9. We leave 10 out, but we need to include it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if we consider it this way, and maybe you've heard this illustration before, but it's as if we are clay on a potter's wheel. Uh, God is constantly forming, shaping us. So at times when we look in the mirror of our lives, maybe literally look in the mirror at home, what we often see or can see is the brokenness that exists or the issues or the problems or the, the difficulties that we experience or, or this, this sinful lifestyle. And when we look, all we can see is that. We don't see the fact that, that we are actually on the potter's wheel and that God is, is working and moving and changing us and drawing us closer to himself and, and making this beautiful creation. Instead, we see the negative and the flaws and 
the difficulties. And, and so, so our, our viewpoint oftentimes isn't as God sees us. It's as our flesh sees us. If we really saw how God sees us, if we could really see that picture of who he's called us to be, who he desires for us to be, who we will be, instead of what we see, the fact, again, that Jesus' blood, if we surrender our lives, covers our sin, that he sees us through that lens, it's possible that our outlook on life would be different. That we wouldn't see ourselves as failures or, or whatever other things come to mind and heart when we view ourselves, that we are actually God's workmanship. And then also in the process of that, we can forget. As we talked about last week as well, we do have a real enemy. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What is Satan's goal for us? I think of those the cartoons, you know, we watch cartoons at our house because we have kids of all ages. Actually, we watch more cartoons than we watch uh, regular shows. But in some of those original cartoons, the Bugs Bunny ones, if you remember some of those, maybe you've seen those, there's a little, a little devil pops up on, you know, the shoulder of Bugs or, or Daffy or somebody, you know, and then all of a sudden there's an angel that pops up. And, of course, it's a, a devil or an angel of himself usually. And so the devil has the little red horns and, and the angel's got the little halo and Daffy's going back and forth, you know, looking at these, these two and trying to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to stick it to Bugs or Petunia Pig or whoever it is? Or uh, am I going to just be a good, a good little duck? And so there's this war, and we see these pictures of these images of, of you know, this, this cute little angel and this, you know, crazy little Daffy devil or whatever it is. And we, we forget there's nothing fun about Satan. His mission for us is to steal any joy we have in our lives. He hates us by his nature. If he could, he would take our very lives. He wants to kill us and anything of Christ in us, especially followers of Jesus. And if he had his way, he would want to destroy anything in us not only that represents God, but anything that's good. He wants to absolutely annihilate us. And so when we experience things in life that are challenges or we get engaged in sin, at times we forget his call for us, if we are his, is greater than this enemy. Oftentimes we think the enemy's got greater power. We let him have power in our lives. We yield to him, forgetting the fact and the truth of verse 4. Little children, you are from God. If we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we are found in him and we are from him. And have overcome them. So not only are we found in him, but we are overcomers. Remember, Jesus overcame the greatest of all time, death, by his resurrection. He's an overcomer, and Satan knows it. He, he doesn't have a short-term memory. He knows he's lost. But he continues to fight and to infiltrate and to live out his mission. For he who is greater, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We need to be reminded that Christ who lives in us 
is greater than Satan, the enemy who is already defeated. So if we could recognize that, realize that, and live with that truth, live in that truth that we are literally in Jesus overcomers, that we don't have to live in defeat, that we don't have to be buried by our sin as followers, that we can actually live lives of overcomers just as he did, it may make a tremendous difference in the way we approach life. How are you doing in that area? If other followers of Jesus were to characterize you who really know you, would they say, boy, that, that's an overcomer in Jesus. We all have deficiencies. We all have weaknesses. One of my big ones, which I like to talk about, is this mechanical area. I'm terrible at those things. I've tried. Listen, I've tried. I'm flat. I'm no good. Even with the fact of knowing I'm an overcomer in Jesus, I still can't put together a three-piece Lego set. Oh, I can. A three-piece, not not a hundred-piece. But I can walk in confidence and faith and strength that in spite of my weaknesses, which we are supposed to highlight, that I can be strong and found in him. In our weakness, he is made strong. If people were to look at your life, would they see more weakness than strength? Would they see more strength than weakness because that's what the world says we're supposed to communicate? Would they see more of Jesus than you? And would they label you as, man, that person's an overcomer? And I'm both challenged and encouraged by that individual because of the way they live their life. That's who we're supposed to be. That's what John was communicating and saying. Then he goes on in verse 5. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. And so there's this category or this grouping the majority of people in our world who come from a worldly standpoint, who have influence, and as a result, they spread a worldly influence to others, and, and we see this happening as we're walking through life. And, and we, who are counterculture, sharing the gospel, sharing Jesus with people, feel it when we're walking through life. We can see it, and we know that we're on the narrow path, and there's a wide path, and most are on the wide path and we're on the narrow and how we're, we're constantly battling and struggling and how um, in the midst of that, we're called to speak once again the story of Jesus and how he changed our lives in the gospel. If we can remember in the midst of that, once again, that we are overcomers, the victory we will experience in that will be amazing. We're going to keep going in that in just a second, but if you have your Bibles, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, There are some verses, I think, that really illustrate this that can help us. And then we'll jump back to 1 John and we'll finish uh, for today. Uh, Verse 11. And this talks about the individual who has surrendered their life to Jesus, Paul addressing. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So it's reminding us that the only ones who can read our thoughts or who really know what we're thinking are individually us, if we keep them in the mind and our thought pattern, and, of course, the Holy Spirit knows our thoughts. God knows our thoughts. Uh, Satan doesn't. Now, there are some who think, well, he's got power, and does he plant things in our minds? Yes, he's the deceiver. Uh, he tempts. He can throw things at us because he knows our weaknesses, but he cannot read our thoughts. The only two that can are us and God. It continues, so also no one 
comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, three in one, comprehend the thoughts of one another in that Trinitarian relationship. They know each other. They know their thoughts. No one can read the thoughts of God. Obviously, he's given us his word, and so we know his heartbeat. We know um, some of the expressions of God based on the word and what we can understand and comprehend, but no one directly knows every thought of God. Continues in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, so when we surrender our lives, we don't receive the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so as we walk as followers of Jesus, if we surrender to him, not only does he convict us of sin, but he also illuminates truth so we can understand. And, And that verse highlights for us the fact that that's freely given to us, that the Spirit speaks to us and that we have this relationship with him. And then we go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. What was Paul saying? I am simplifying the message of Jesus so everyone can understand it. It's not a complicated system. Paul wanted everyone to understand as much as possible about God and the gospel and the word. And so he constantly worked towards simplifying the message. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is, the gospel. And so as we plow ground together, individually and together, our heart's mindset, goal should be to share the gospel, to communicate the story clearly so people can process it. And the beautiful thing about that is we're only called to share share the story and share the gospel. The one who changes lives is the Holy Spirit, not us. All we're called to do is open our mouths and freely share, and then we watch within that God working. Verse 6, we are from God, of 1 John 4, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Why does it surprise us? That when we walk throughout the world and we share the gospel and we share our lives and we're, we're striving to walk with Jesus that people don't understand. I mean, honestly, it catches us off guard at times, right? We, we, we talk to people, we engage, we share the gospel, we, we talk about how Jesus has radically changed our lives. And sometimes it's just like deer in the headlights. Is anybody in there? What's, what's going on? Or we get this back, aggressive response, verbally or otherwise. And people look at us like, man, you're crazy. What, what, what are you trying to communicate? What are you trying to say? Again, the Spirit's the one who illuminates. Our responsibility is to tell, but, but why are we surprised when people just don't get it? We should expect it. Why should we be surprised that the world continues to worsen? We should expect it. But in spite of it, remembering the fact that we are overcomers, our direct calling, we continue to strive. Watching those around us who are lost, prayerfully surrendering their lives to him. Intentionality. Let me ask this. How regularly or consistently do you pray for lost people? For those for sure that you know do not have a relationship with Jesus. 
once a week, once a month? Do you have a list? Are you serious about these people that you know to the extent of praying that God radically saves and changes them? And not praying if you give me an opportunity, God, but when, that I will be ready. Thursdays are my day that I pray for people who are lost within my realm of influence. Uh, There are multiple here in this area whom I've prayed for for a long time, that God would provide the opportunity, that I would recognize it, and I would walk through the doors, and that they they would run to him. I've prayed for some of them for years. I've shared the gospel with them. I've shared my story with them. Some haven't yet responded. I continue to pray. It's important. So if you haven't yet developed that in your life, haven't started that, consider neighbors, friends, those with whom you know who are lost, and write down one, two, three names, and then consistently pray for them. Put them on your steering wheel, put them on your mirror at home, whatever you see the most, and begin to pray that God would save them. He would you would recognize the opportunity he gives you to open your mouth and share your story and the gospel with them and see what God does six months from now, see where you are. Prayerfully, as they surrender their lives, you'll have to put on new people. Uh, My list has changed radically over the last three to five years of seeing individuals come to Jesus. If we're serious, if we're intentional, if we really want people to recognize the difference between the spirit of truth in the spirit of error, and we want them to run to Jesus, we have got to be doing one of the two, two offensive moves that we can as followers. Sort of the spirit, word of God, and prayer. If that's not been developed, maybe it's time for that to get going in your life. If it is developed, keep persevering, even if you don't see action happening, because the spirit's doing things we can't see, and who knows the timing of that of when he will actually draw them. Okay, this is a really great verse. Maybe it's been a while since you've heard this. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we know that um, the marvelous light song, you know, a lot of us really like that one. But there's a, there's a, a phrase in there in the beginning that says a royal priesthood. Okay, what does that mean for us? If you recall in the Old Testament, if you studied that, there was a, a priest who would have to go behind the curtain and make sacrifices for the people. They had direct access to God in that way. We even see that uh, really in the beginning of the New Testament until Jesus was crucified and the veil was torn. Remember that? Um, how that, that displayed uh, this open access. We, vocationally or not, that means if we have a job or not as a pastor, we are all priests. What does that mean? We have direct access to God. Any moment, any time, we can talk to him. We can spend time with him, and he can change us, and he can move in us, and we can hear his voice, and we can study his his word. We all have access all the time. It's freeing. That wasn't the experience that we see previous to Jesus, This, this direct access should be freeing for us to realize and know that we have that type of access to God and we should be using that. Spending time with him because he's our number one. Do we know who we are in him? Are we recognizing the spirit of error, spirit of truth? We believe by grace and we believe by nature. What does we believe by nature mean? 
And what he spelled out here, what does it mean? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What does that mean? Picture of baptism. This is our life before surrendering to Jesus. When we're baptized, it shows that that old life is dead, buried, gone when we surrender to Jesus. This is our new life in him. So what is that telling us? Our nature has changed. We are born sinners. But when our lives are found in Jesus, when we surrender, we have new life in him. Our nature is new. It's found in him. And so as a result, the Holy Spirit resides in us and leads and guides and corrects and convicts and speaks to our hearts. Again, that's freeing. Or should be. Our nature is different. Remember the psalm where I've hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you? What, What happens when we memorize scripture? Why is it important? Well, one, it's a heart transformation. Draws us closer to the heart of God when we know his word. Second, in our minds, what it does is it squeezes out a lot of the garbage and it replaces it with God's word, which helps us to become more and more effective in our lives and closer to God in relationship. That's why we should be memorizing scripture. More of him, less of us. Maybe that's another discipline if you're looking for a verse to memorize and you're wondering where to start, 1 John 4, 4. Remembering that you are an overcomer. The one who is greater in you, if you are found in Jesus, is greater than the one in the world. Strive to live in that direction. All right, let's, let's wrap it up. Obviously, uh, I have not, as I shared before, even attempted to help somebody else put a garage door opener up. <laughs> I probably never will. Please don't call me. Um, I can lay things out on the floor. I can, I can put the nuts and bolts in the right places. I, I can stare at you doing the work. But, but trust me, you don't want me anywhere near a garage door opener. Uh, th- there are limitations in my life. I get them, I see them, and you know, th- th- there we go. Your skill set may be different. Jeff Allen, the man can fix and create anything. You don't even need instructions, really. A 7,000-piece thing, got to build a system. The man's done in like three seconds. I don't know how you get that kind of skills. Congratulations. Uh, it's very good. Uh, glad Jeff's my friend. He hadn't had to build anything for me lately, but who knows what's coming. Uh, anyway, there, there's the... Just kidding. Um, he and I are radically different individuals. What's similar? That we are both grounded in depth, loving Jesus, striving to simplify the gospel, to share our story and share the gospel with people who are lost. In that way, very much the same because we're both committed and devoted to the same thing. And God can do that work in both of us. It's really not necessarily even a skill set. It's the Holy Spirit given in each one of us. We're all priests. We said it. He's given you the same. So the question is, what's keeping you from it? What keeps me from sharing the gospel? Fear. If we're truly overcomers, if we can remember that and see ourselves as God sees us, fear of the greater eliminates the fear of the lesser. As we draw closer to God, 
relationally as we draw like this, the fear of rejection goes away because we're pleasing one. How are you doing in the area of sharing the gospel? Let's pray together.